Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast where we dig into the issues, personalities, and politics of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm Karen Robinson, communications strategist and Democratic activist. So this week on the Primarily podcast, uh, it's a theme, the theme is organizing. I don't have a guest this week. I'm just going to be talking uh, a little bit about what I know about, about on-the-ground organizing in, in two specific ways, both um, the organizing that takes place in a campaign or a cause or an, act, or, or an activism around an issue or, or a candidate or a set of beliefs, a kind of informal organizing and, and what are some of the principles behind that and what are some of the things that work and don't work and a little bit of the psychology and the sociology of why that works and what I've learned in my career as a as a communications consultant um, and strategist on the one hand. And then on the other hand, another type of organizing that takes place, which is um, the organization organizing. So um, when political parties do the work of being an organization, that can be really challenging. And I think the ways that that happens um, really show why and how political parties as entities and other formal organizations um, as com- as compared to movements have really struggled in recent years to keep people engaged and make things work really well. So um, the theme of this week is those two models of organizing and what we can learn about them, what, what we can do for them. Um, and then, of course, before we dig into that, I will do a quick news update for you um, about what's going on this week in the campaign trail. Probably the biggest primary news this week is the introduction into the race of former Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke of Texas. Beto is a former former member of the House of Representatives from El Paso, Texas. He famously ran a um, highly successful, although just short of victory, uh, Senate campaign in the state of Texas. Um, obviously, a Senate campaign that 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 had won would have been better, um, but uh, in this case, to come as close as we did in Texas, and he was within about three points of of Ted Cruz, um, was a, a a better performance than Democrats have seen in Texas for a very long time. Texas, obviously, being a very big conservative leaning state, but with a lot of demographic shifts, um, is one that people have been watching very closely, and at some point, possibly in our lifetimes, Democrats are expecting that that Texas just because of demographic change, might indeed shift into the Democratic column. If and when it does that, there will be a huge electoral college advantage to Democrats of that. So a part of the Beto enthusiasm is, is probably that that Texas aspect of it and the excitement that Democrats have for competing everywhere. Um, and if you've been following this podcast for a while, you know that I have two fundamental premises of the race. One is be not afraid and the other is run everywhere. Um, and I think Beto nicely exemplifies both. He was unafraid of tackling um, a state where Democrats have have not made a lot of progress in, in recent years. Um, and he's just out there on the campaign trail. So um, welcome into the race. I think that's fantastic. Kamala Harris, when asked about his his entry, she said, um, welcome. It's great. The more the merrier. Um, we've got an embarrassment of riches on the Democratic side right now, which I think is the 
both true and also the right way for a candidate to play it. Right now, everybody should be glad to see everybody. We should all play nice. We should all be friends. Um, we have serious policy disagreements, but um, everybody from a purely tactical point of view, you don't want to be seen as the one who's ostracizing the, the supporters of any other candidate. And uh, a lot of people will probably fall by the wayside as this race comes in. So you'll want to... Um, be seen as somebody who's been welcoming and friendly and we are all friends at the end of the day. Um, having said that, I will, I am happy to see Beto in the race. I think he's been a very compelling candidate. It's been fun to watch him. Um, I would like to see him up his game, not in terms of policy necessarily, because that sounds like it's saying I want him to write some white papers, which I don't. Um, but I would like to see him talking in a more concrete way about the change that he's proposing to make. Um, and what I mean by that is his Senate campaign wrapped around two ideas. One, um, he's going to, he traveled to every county of Texas. That was an important part of his campaign. And I think there was a nice messaging in that about speaking to every part of the state, every part of the country, um, nobody being left behind. I think that's great. The second one was about um, fundraising uh, and that he wasn't taking any PAC money um, he was going to raise all of his money um, in state, in, in, not all in state, but most of his money was raised in state, um, but certainly not from from special interests. Um, both of those are are nice messages, but I'd like him to make us to tell us a story now about what a Beto O'Rourke presidency would mean for the lives of everyday Americans, over and above those things. So that's my challenge to Beto. I think Elizabeth Warren, for example, is talking about kind of reining in, uh, reining in the the corporate corporations and making making America fair, making capitalism fair again. Um, Kamala has a vision about kind of working for the people. Um, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders has a democratic socialist agenda. I'm a little unclear at this point what a Beto candidacy or a Beto presidency would do differently from some others. Um, and then the other piece of news this week is that President Trump's emergency declaration, um, his declaration of emergency for the purpose of, of securing funding for his border wall, um, has lost a vote in Congress on both houses of Congress. So not just the House with which Democrats control, but also the Senate. Um, the, the bill that was passed um, would block his uh, ability to use, uh, to, to use a declaration of emergency in what is clearly an non-emergency circumstance. 12 Republicans joined with Democrats to pass that bill. And I think it's interesting to just pause and, and take note that this is the first time we have seen a major uh, revolt from the Republican Party's own uh, own senatorial wing. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate, Senate, Senate Majority Leader, um, was a kind of a facilitator, not of the revolt necessarily, but he was not a strong pusher for the president's policy. And I think it's worth thinking about this in two ways. One, it's great to, to ever see Republicans pushing back against the president's um, unconstitutional instincts, as they should. But it's also worth thinking about the limitations of that, because the way in which Republicans were reacting to the president's declaration of emergency on constitutional grounds, which I agree with them, um, it was beyond the beyond what is permitted in the Constitution, 
Their concern was what would a future Democratic president do with this power? Because if you can declare an emergency, um, anytime there is a policy that you feel strongly about and you want to get funding for to support it, there's no reason, as one of them said, that you couldn't, for example, imagine a future President Elizabeth Warren declaring an emergency for climate change or a future uh, President Kamala Harris um, declaring an emergency for criminal justice reform. Um, what would that look like. And I think the the concern that they have, which is very much leading from Republican principles, is does this open the door for a future Democratic president to just get anything they want and bypass us? And I think the answer is, yeah, it, it did. <laughs> like, like if President Trump's um, emergency declaration had stood up, then I think quite rightly Democrats would say, well, okay, if this is how we're doing things, it's not constitutional, it's not right. Um, but you'd have a lot of people on the left going, okay, that's the game you're going to play. So um, before we get too excited about uh, about how excellent it is that they've stood up for the Constitution, which they should and which is right, um, let's also note that this was very much in their own self-interest. So the theme of today's podcast is is organizing. Now, for those of you who, who don't know me personally, uh, my story is I, I have been politically engaged and active for a very long time. Um, I think going back to working on um, with Democrats abroad on John Kerry's campaign in the primary of of 2004. Um, then I worked with Barack Obama's campaign in 2007, uh, 2008 in his primary, eventually um, being hired on staff for the DNC to work uh, on behalf of President Obama's, well, then Senator Obama's general election campaign in 2008. My role on that was was called regional field director, which means I was an organizer for um, in the field for people on the ground, grassroots activists um, in Northern Europe. So I was given the territory of trying to find U.S. expat voters in the U.K., Ireland, Scandinavia register them and get them to the polls. And that meant um, a whole series of fascinating challenges, but it also meant I spent a lot of time kind of having little meetings in pubs or the back rooms of restaurants or in people's living rooms where I would just talk about the candidate, talk about the steps we were taking, what were the things that you could do to be helpful? What did, what did, what could we together do? What would a change look like? And, and just bring people on board slowly, 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 very informally, very casually. Um, and that's, that's organizing. Um, and that's the campaigns call it field. Um, and I think it's really interesting to me because this week I went to a meeting just like those meetings that I was having in 2007, 2008 for Obama, um, which was, it happened to be, uh, an event that was hosted for, uh, Pete Buttigieg's Buttigieg. I don't know. We practiced saying his name. It's one of the things we did. Pete Buttigieg's, um, Buttigieg, Buttigieg, <laughs> Pete Mayor Pete, as he likes to be called, uh, for his uh, primary campaign. Now, I should say, I am not a Pete Buttigieg supporter. I think he's terrific, but I don't have a candidate. Um, I love, as I've said before, I love Elizabeth Warren. I think Kamala Harris is fantastic. I'm interested to see where Beto is going to go. Um, but Joe Biden, who I love, is not in the race yet. So I am still very wide open in terms of who my candidate is, but I love organizing meetings. I just love them. I think they're great. Um, and one of the reasons I love them is because um, you can watch 
watch people's minds change in the room. And I don't mean they come into the room going, I'm not supporting this candidate, and they come out going, I am supporting this candidate. It's more subtle than that. Um, An organizing meeting of that type, it acts upon you in a way that as a communication strategist, um, I am very interested in. Um, and I'll, I'll come on to that a little bit more. So, so that kind of organizing, um, that informal, um, collective coming together in support of a campaign or an issue or a cause or a candidate is, um, a very powerful and can be a very engaging way of bringing people into the political process. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years with the rise of, for example, the women's march with March for Our Lives, um, marching against gun control, with just the sort of general resistance movement against Trump, we've seen an enormous engagement with that kind of organizing, the informal organizing that um, brings people together who have maybe nothing in common except a shared feeling or view and turn that kind of vague feeling of something must be done into a set of constructive actions that you can take. So to give you an example of what that looks like, um, the Buttigieg meeting was probably about 15, maybe 20 people in the room. So it's a small meeting in somebody's office. You know, there are drinks on the table, snacks here and there. Snacks are very important in organizing. Um, so you've, people come together and it's not a formal structured meeting. It's not a, we have an agenda and we're going to take the, meet- the minutes of the meeting. Some meetings are like that, but but a real organizing meeting is not. It's more okay, we're here, we've got some things we want to talk about, here's what I want to tell you. But there are two purposes to an organizing meeting. You're trying to do two things. First of all, you're trying to get people to talk to each other, open up, share. Um, the, the interesting question is always something along the lines of, what brings you here today? Why did you want to come out? What's what's interesting you about the campaign? Why, why did you want to come and talk to us today? Or what's on your mind? You just want to get people to tell you what they're thinking, so that they can almost talk themselves into <laughs> a position. Um, and I, it sounds really manipulative when I do that, but what I, when I say that, but what I mean is the more closed you are in your campaign messaging, the more you say, we are here today to support candidate Joe Smith. Joe Smith is a great candidate because he thinks position A, B, and C. Please go out and tell everyone you know about A, B, and C. They'll be fine. What happens to activists um, and, you know, or supporters or voters is they walk away from that meeting going, there is no role for me here. They know what they're doing. They have these tasks. So I'm not needed. My point of view is, um, you know, maybe, maybe valued by them, but not, not a part of this. It's not needed. So the more you can get people to open up and say, well, this is what's on my mind. I have these feelings. I, especially at an early stage, the more you can get people to engage with what are their issues? What are their concerns? What are their, what are their feelings? Get it out of them and then build that into it. Well, you know, I, I heard you when you said that, you know, your son or daughter is having trouble struggles at school. You're worried about our education system. Um, that's really great. And, and bring them on board and like, well, 
I think it's so important too. And and I've shared this experience and, and I have a primary school child and, and I really worry about this, like what the thing you worry about, but also I build on it and I worry about this. And then you get a kind of conversation going and all of a sudden it's this kind of collective engagement together as a community that we don't have very often anymore. It used to be that we had more social institutions whereby those types of things would happen in an informal low-key way um, with people who had different, different points of view. So you used to have things like churches or community centers or even like women's institutes or knitting circles, bowling leagues, places where people would come together and informally align or meet together. These things obviously still exist, but there's been a lot of research that shows that there's a decline in those types of informal um, informal associations where people intersect in this way. And so political organizing meetings um, play a, almost like a community role, which I think is lovely, but also they are much more persuasive when they are structured in a more open, social, inclusive kind of welcome, come talk to us, what's going on with you way. Um, and, and again, like I find, and I'm very, I'm being very cerebral about this in a way, but um, I, it kind of, it acts on me as well. So I'm, I kind of go to these things and having studied persuasion technique and the ways that people think about um, and are persuaded um, by a cause, an issue, a candidate, or a brand in, in my professional work. Um, I'm aware of these forces that are acting upon us, but they also act upon me. So I, I'll be going, yes, I'm really excited about this. And at the same time, I'll be going, oh, I see what's happening here. What's happening is I'm engaging in social social capital. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm signaling this or I'm doing that. So I'm very cerebral about it, but I'm also not distanced from it. Um, so, you know, for instance, when you go along to a meeting, when I go along to a meeting, I really enjoy them because I find it a very rich experience. I find it a, a an inspiring and optimistic opportunity to come together around things that I care about. Um, and even if even if a person goes into an organizing activity weekly aligned to the candidate, the cause or activity, um, any further action, any action at all that someone takes towards advancing a cause is very, very motivating in terms of persuading them to do more things. Um, what I mean by that is if you, so there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of studies around this that say, if you are, even if you are randomly assigned a position, um, so like someone draws out of a hat, um, okay, I'm pulling it out of the hat. I, uh, support our local neighborhood resolution on traffic control. Okay. And so I'm going to go away and you've asked me to make a short speech about this. So you do that. I'll make a short, short speech about this. Even though that position has been randomly assigned to you, you are statistically more likely to actually support that position if you have been in the, if you have had the experience of taking, of speaking on behalf of it or taking any action for it. Um, so that's a really important principle of political organizing, which is that a lot of people think you need to persuade people and then they'll be your volunteers. But it actually works the other way around. You kind of need to get them to do something for you, even if it's like, so you'll hear a lot of, you know what, you don't, it doesn't matter if you support Pete, it doesn't matter if you support Kamala, just come to the meeting. We'd love to just 
hear from you, hear what's going on with you. Like, we just want you to, to, to hear your voice. Like no, no commitment. Nobody expects anything of you. You can walk away, go support another candidate. That's fine. But please just come, come and talk to us. And that is a, um, like it's uncynical to say it's a technique, but it's just a good principle of organizing, organizing as opposed to organization structure that says, Anything you do for a cause will make you more committed to that cause, more deeply embedded in that cause, more likely to do further things, more likely to give money. So for instance, one of the things that you will see happening right now, and it happened at the Buttigieg meeting, and I know it's happening with other candidates because I've been following the columns of of all of the candidates. One of the things that's happening right now is that everybody's getting ready for the debates, Now, the DNC have set rules for how the debates operate. And there are certain pretty low-hanging fruit. There are certain kind of things you need to do in order to qualify for being a debate. The DNC just wants to kind of see that you have enough support that it's worth us giving you some time on air. So, um, for example, I think one of the criteria is you have to have 65,000 donors, So not an amount of money, you have to demonstrate that that number of people have given you money of any amount. What they want to see is that you have a broad fundraising base, okay? Um, You need to get to 1% in the polls. Now, 1% is not a lot, right? And it looks like we're probably going to wind up having upwards of 20 candidates. So we'll probably have two different debates with 20 candidates, each of whom have $65,000 and 1%. Okay. So that's the, that's setting the scene. So a lot of people are going to be on this debate stage, but what the candidates and the campaigns have done is recognize this is a fantastic opportunity because all you need to say to people is you don't have to support us. We're not asking for a vote at this point. No, we just want you to, would you just give a dollar three dollars to the campaign not because you're supporting us yet like you may not vote for us but we just want to we just we just feel like we want to we like we think it's important that we make it to the debates can you just help us get that far just just so that we can have our voice heard so that you know pete so that kamala so that Corey can have their voice heard get us on the debate stage so all we need is a donation from you of any amount no commitment it can be a dollar it's nothing just do it um and that's a that is a compelling theory of change. So theory of change means um, we have to tell someone, if you do thing X, then it will lead to thing Y and thing Z, which is our ultimate outcome, will become closer. So in this case, the theory of change is... um, if you give me $1, which is a tiny thing, and it doesn't make that big a difference, so it doesn't feel like you're doing a big thing, so there's a low barrier to entry, but at the same time, um, it, you know, like you might, so you think, oh, that's easy to do, but then you might also think, is that really going to matter? So the theory of change is give a dollar, and it's not a lot of money for you, but actually it ladders up to um, uh, improve, improving our likelihood of getting on the debate. Step two, once our candidate is in the debate, A, not only will his or her presence on the debate stage make our politics better, make sure that a broader range of voices are heard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we think that once our candidate's voices, voice is heard, that they will influence uh, American politics for the better, that they will be the better candidate, and that when people see that, they will like to hear what our candidate has to say, and that will be our path to the nomination. So step one, you give a little bit of money, that's going to get our person onto the debate stage. Being on the debate stage is going to um, is going to give this person an audience that they haven't had before, especially for candidates like who are not Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. 
that's going to open things up. Um, so that's how your dollar makes a big difference. So it's a really compelling theory of change. It makes sense. Each step of it works. And it's a way of saying to a donor or an activist, you don't have to do much. Here's a tiny thing you can do that will make a big difference. But by getting them to take that small action, you're walking them up the steps. You're walking them up the ladder towards ever, ever deeper engagement. Um, and I think it's like, it's a really compelling idea um, and approach and model. And it's also deeply engaging. It's deeply engaging in that there are so many entry points. There are so many ways to get involved. And organizing of that type is a really um, rich way of engaging in a community, in politics, in a belief system. So I love organizing. I love that. I think field is an underappreciated aspect of modern politics. I think people don't recognize as much as they should that the way that Obama won in 2008 was he overinvested in field organizing compared to other campaigns. So just to be clear, because when I started doing this, I didn't have any clue of this either. So field is the on the ground grassroots. This is your people who are organizing people to make phone calls, knock doors, um, have direct one-to-one contact with voters. Yes, run meetings, um, do very small dollar fundraising, kind of the things that get people on the ground active. And then you've got media, which tends to be your, um, like obviously you've got your paid advertising, you've got your earned media. So there's a whole world of democratic consultants who are making a lot of money off of um, democratic candidates by telling them that they need to spend huge money on paid TV ads or digital ads, um, various forms of advertising, or that they need to um, spend all their time getting on the media, doing, doing earned media. So doing an, a CNN interview, doing a, a, a CNN town hall, or or doing a, a meet the press interview. So those are the kind of like field is very unglamorous. Consultants don't make a lot of money out of it. Um, media, so paid media and earned media. Um, and I, I can say this because I work in comms and we make money off of this. These are lucrative and um, professionalized and uh, highly effective in their own spheres. But in politics, I would contend that field is underappreciated and undervalued compared to the uh, delivery capacity that it has to give votes on your doorstep. Um, And there are all sorts of reasons why field is undervalued. One reason why is because politicians themselves, like they come from, they often come from a field background, but in their day-to-day lives don't have the opportunities of, um, doing the kind of field work that is that that, that we do. Um, consultants are telling them ads, uh, paid media and earned media is the way to go. And it seems compelling because you always think, why am I worried about somebody knocking on 10 doors in an afternoon when I could be spending money to blast it out to a million people? But the actual richness of the contact that you have and even the scale of the contact with field as compared to paid or earned is actually much bigger if you organize it properly. If you are able to recruit the proportion of volunteers and put them in the communities that matter and um, teach them mechanisms or means of campaigning on the ground that are effective, you can do a lot better at persuasion and at get out the vote 
again, these are the two linchpins of, of field organizing. You're trying to do persuasion and GOTV. GOTV means people you already know support them, to support the candidate, and, uh, and persuasion is obviously bringing people onto your side. Now, so you can do those two things much more effectively and much more trackably, much more measurably, much better with field than you can with any amount of media budget. So there's room for all three of these things, but I just like I'm really passionate about the fact people don't invest as much money or attention or kind of mental space to field as they should. So, um, so so organizing in that type in that in that way by that definition of field organizing. It's very rich. It's very engaging. So one of the meetings that I went to this week was one of those. It was a classic example of an early field meeting. And I loved it. I love these things. They're great. Another meeting that I went to this week was the biannual election general meeting for Democrats abroad, United Kingdom. Um, now, I also enjoyed this meeting, I should say, because I am a total geek. Um, and because there were people there who I know to be good people and who I was delighted to see. And um, so that like, it was a wonderful meeting in many ways. And I love the people there and I loved the spirit in the room and it was all very positive. Having said that, the meeting was scheduled to last for five hours. It didn't last for five hours just because it was excellently, excellently run by some very good friends of mine and I commend them. Um, so it was excellently run by some friends of mine to keep it as efficient as possible, which meant it was only about three and a half hours. And during that three and a half hours, almost all we did was use a, a, a structured electoral process and Robert's Rules of Order to get through an order of business in order to identify, to, to, to elect by democratic means officers, executive committee members, DPCA representatives, and council members of this organization. And it's amazing how extended amounts of time can be spent on um, what is fundamentally, so we have to elect leaders, it is important to do it, and an enormous amount of time and energy is spent on it every couple of years for an organization which is fundamentally political at its heart, so people campaign with some verve. I, for full disclosure, was up for re-election to the executive committee, that's the sort of governing board of the organization, um, and I did win, so thank you if you voted for me. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to serve on that role, and I'm happy to, 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 to run for office. What I think is always interesting, though, is I look at that meeting as a great example of a disconnect that exists between what people are doing politics for and how politics actually works. Because everybody in that room was on the same page. You know, we have differences of emphasis. There are people in that room who are more to the left than I am, more to the right than I am. But everybody is universally passionately committed to keeping Donald Trump out of the White House in 2020. And, you know, broadly, we all like all the candidates we're supporting on that level. But then if someone is running for an office for themselves, they have a, an idea about, you know, it's it's pragmatic things like database management, different th the things that the organization does. As soon as we have to negotiate difference within ourselves as an organization, um, feelings get high. And that's understandable. Um, it's It's hard to run. And I think it was really, for me... I look at that meeting and it was one of the smoother election meetings we ever had, I should say. I am not in any way complaining about that meeting because it was as smooth as it ever gets. 
But there are always hard feelings. There are always people who want to lead and don't get elected and who would make great leaders, but don't get elected. There are people who always feel like the process is too opaque, it's too difficult. And it probably is very opaque. I don't think it's too opaque because there are processes we have to go through. But so much of it is procedural, is structural, is managerial. So much of the meeting is managed through Robert's Rules of Order, um, which is a complicated process. Now, Robert's Rules is fantastic for helping to negotiate difference and conflict within an organization in a way that creates consistency and clarity. Um, And it's, someone said to me once, like, it really is, should only be used it, 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 it is a very powerful tool for managing conflict. If you are using it to manage everything you do, then you're probably not a functioning organization because at some point you need to build enough trust that you can just go, okay, we're just going to have the meeting. We're not going to have points of order and points of information. Um, but anyway, so an election meeting by definition is a conflict meeting. So you have to be very structured about it. You have to be very formal and for new entrants into the organization um, and the election meeting is often the first extended experience that new entrants to Democrats Abroad will have to our organization. It um, it can be really off-putting and really uh, upsetting even because they're sitting here for hours. Things are really confusing. People are shouting out points of order. Stuff's happening. None of it, it, it all seems kind of confusing and, and as if it's specifically designed to keep outsiders out and insiders in. And it's not. <laughs> like I can tell you as having somebody who's having been an insider, I am as confused as you are. Nobody knows what they're doing. We're all figuring it out. Um, But it's really fascinating to me the way that the problems of organization, um, like capital O organization, as in the organization, the problems of being an organization and running a political organization as compared to field organizing um, are so similar at every level because our election meeting, it, it, it maps exactly onto the way that the DNC's role in running the primary works, right? The DNC took a lot of criticism during the 2016 primary. Some of it may have been justified, um, but they took a lot of criticism for uh, by specifically, especially Bernie Sanders supporters, because there was this insider-outsider dynamic that happened that, that felt very insider-outsider. But I think what was just, well, what what I experienced it through the lens of was recognizing that as somebody who's been through a lot of these types of things and watching a lot of primary cycles and being a part of the Democratic Party for a long time, I recognized that this is how it works. <laughs> and it can be really off-putting. It can be really off-putting, but it's not because anybody is trying to favor anyone over anyone else. It's more that... The reason the party systems can feel frustrating is because they are neutral as to the outcome. And that's really frustrating if you are very invested in the outcome. What I mean by that, and that may sound controversial because everybody thinks that the party systems are invested in an outcome, but the function of a party system is to, or the party organization with a capital O, like the Democratic Party, organization is to be the framework under which we can come to a resolution about certain issues, who the candidate is being the primary one. And um, that that is hard if you are if you are the neutral entity who's formally in the process of running a procedure, you will have a lot of people shouting at you because 
they are very invested in a particular outcome, and all they can see is the obstacles between themselves and their preferred outcome. From your point of view as a party organizer, like with a capital O, I am part of this organization organizer, what you're seeing is I have to follow a specific set of arcane rules and bylaws. From the point of view of a new entrant to the organization who would like to get more involved and is perhaps running for office for the first time in a low level, you know, uh, executive committee or representative role, or even just for our council, which is kind of just a baseline, a baseline kind of elevated level of membership. Um, all they can see is nothing makes any sense. It's really confusing. It's really hard. Can we make it easier? Can we make it hard? Oh, God, yes. And we should. Um, there's a lot that we can do to make life less hard than it needs to be. But at the same time, we can only simplify it down to a certain level of simplicity and, and not further. And I think when you've had the experience of going to a, a meeting like the Buttigieg meeting or a meeting like I used to host for Obama and it, and to see that there's a space for everyone and there's there's clarity and it's really simple and it's not hard to understand how you can make a big difference and then come to an election meeting like the one we had, it's... um. It's 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 fascinating to see that the exact same people in two different rooms are having such a different experience about what being a Democrat is and what Democratic Party politics is all about. Um, and I think that that is a long way of me saying that there has been a decline in big O organization um, recently. Uh, as as more and more people have been gravitating towards issue led activism or or engaging just around a candidate. And I just really, really believe in also doing the party or party organizing and the structure. And I think there's two things. One, can we make it easier? Yes, we can. Let's let's do that. Let's make it as easy as it can be. But then two, it's also I want to ask people to try and just bear with us a little bit and and bear with the party a little bit when we do the the stuff that that gets frustrating because. There are reasons why it is that way. And it is good for everyone if the party has exactly the same boring, tedious, perhaps overly archaic structures in place for everyone and every election and every race and things like things like, for example, the Democratic Party has a gender balance rule, which makes it really complicated. We have a gender balance rule that says the chair and vice chair must be of opposite gender. That means that very often well Inevitably, when a candidate is elected for chair, that candidate will either be identified as male or female. I haven't yet had the experience of having a non-binary person elected. I'm not sure how our rules would comply with that, but I'm sure we'd find a way forward. But a, non a person will be elected. And then it very often happens that we'll then, okay, the, 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 the candidates of the other gender have to drop out. It's tough. Um, and that feels really off-putting and feels really negative, but it's coming from a good place. It's coming from a place of trying to secure overall gender balance in the organization. So stuff like that that's really hard and people get frustrated by, I get frustrated by. And I was just as frustrated as anyone else when I first joined the organization. But over time, I've started to see some of these things exist for reasons, and they don't need to stop you from doing the other good work that you're doing. Go to both meetings. Do it all. <laughs> Find the time somewhere. Um, I, I, I certainly do. At least I try. And now it's time for the gut check game. For those of you who are not familiar with the podcast, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, into which I have placed various 
quotations heard on the campaign trail, policies proposed, um, legislation, ideas, slogans and strap lines. And I'm just going to pull one out of the hat and I will check my gut and see how I feel about that. So uh, without further ado, reaching in. And I have pulled out, oh, I have pulled out a policy, which is universal basic income. Now, universal basic income is something that's been floating around on the left for a little while now, um, and it's a little complicated, which is why I think as a gut check, it's a tricky one. Uh, but the fundamental idea is you give people money, and um, that as it's it's more complicated than that, but basically that fundamentally you everybody gets an income, everybody gets a certain amount of money, um, and there are complicated levers that you use to adjust kind of how it's structured, but fundamentally um, it, 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 it reshapes the whole economy. Um, now there are places where this has been tried approaches like this. I have a, I have a, a book downstairs in my house um, all about universal basic income, which I keep meaning to get around to reading and I haven't. Um, but I like it. I like the idea of it, and I like the direction of travel. In that, um, we have a problem as a society in that um, employment is changing, and our society's um, ability to fully employ a workforce may not be operative in the future. What do you do as a society if? all of most of the functional work or at least the work that we ascribe value to is outsourced to automation. Universal basic income is not the complete solution to that problem, but it it covers off some of it. And the other thing that it does is it helps equalize various different benefits programs across the population. So instead of, and there's just tons and tons of evidence that if you want to lift people out of poverty, um, the kind of targeted campaign, the targeted programs that we're doing with food stamps and you get a certain amount for this, or if you do job training, you get a certain amount for that is much less effective than just giving people money across the board. Um, and it's actually can be more cost effective to do it that way. Um, but there are all sorts of complications that go into it. So I think what I'm talking myself around to is that um, universal basic income might be a good idea, but it's probably a more complicated one than we want to try and sell on the campaign trail. Because even I have been trying to follow it, don't really quite get what's going on with it. Should I do another one? I'm going to pull out... Oh, goodness, this is another one that, 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 that I struggle with because I think it's a little more complicated than it needs to be. Um, so this is a piece of legislation. Um, it's the it's HR1, the For the People Voting Rights Act. Um, now, this is a uh, comprehensive improvement, uh, revamp, uh, um, reevaluation, improvement, change to the way that voting happens in this country. There are just too many ways that it's too hard for too many people to vote in this country. Um, the voting rights bill, if you want to call it that, would do all sorts of things like making voting making making election day a national holiday, um, mandating more voting centers, setting setting international setting national standards for things like voting machines, um, mandating that uh, lines can't be more than a certain length, all sorts of things, all the sort of good practice that other countries are doing to make it easier to vote um, that have been held back from the U.S. for a long time. Um, now, I am I am a supporter of this. I'm 
all for anything that makes it easier for people to vote. But I'm I've been frustrated by how badly the messaging on this bill has been uh, operated, um, including for for example the fact that when I went to try and find the name of the bill, I couldn't find it because I couldn't think how to search for it. And um, Democratic Voting Rights uh, Democratic Voting Rights Bill Improve Voting Reform, what have you. It turns out it's called the For the People Voting Rights Act HR one. That's a terrible name. We need to do better. So let's do it, but let's call it something else. All right, final one. Okay, this is an interesting one. Um, so this is a quote, not from a candidate. This is a quote that I uh, th- that I read um, from a March for Our Lives activist. Uh, she says, "Our friends are dying, so we march." Gun control, um, and I've talked about this before, gun control is something that used to be considered almost like a third rail of democratic politics, where democratic politicians have been wary of, of putting it front and center of the campaigns because they've been concerned that um, a lot of people a lot of people support guns, a lot of gun ownership in the U.S., and they thought, oh, well, it's going to lose us votes, it's going to lose us support. The, the politics on this issue have shifted, and one of the reasons it has shifted is because of the work of people like the young activists that I just quoted. And I just so admire the um, unashamed, unafraid, honest, um, uncompromising way that they have gone out there with the March for Our Lives. Um, And they have just said, no, enough. It's done. But yes, we will work with whoever we need to work with. Yes, we will um, be thoughtful about the rights of of all citizens. But no, you, you can't you can't stop. You can't keep shooting us. It has to stop. Um, and so the language they use is very direct. Our friends are dying. Um, and I think we've been too, as a Democratic Party, we have been too apologetic about this for too long. Um, 33,000 people on average are dying every year in America through gun violence. And most of them are suicides, preventable suicides. If you ask people um, that, so if you do a study, um, they've done studies where they speak to people who survived a suicide attempt, and most people who survive a suicide attempt do not attempt it again. So they're happy to be alive, um, but making it easier for people to take their lives, um, well, takes more lives. And then you have mass shootings, such as the ones that we've seen all over the U.S. And, and sadly, um, we had another one in New Zealand in this case, um, but just, just yesterday or, or this morning, 49 people were killed in a mosque. Um, and it's, it's just not okay. We, it, we have to make it stop. And uh, for a long time, I had, I had sort of given up on the belief that it was possible to make something happen. Um, and I think it was Barack Obama's biggest disappointment of his, uh, of his presidency that he couldn't move this issue. And so it's inspiring and encouraging to see these young people and their parents and their friends and, and everybody, a lot of people across the country just go enough and, and really make this stick. So, um, let's, let's give them the credit that they deserve and let's, uh, let's, let's live up to their expectations for us. And that's it. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Karen JR. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. And if you haven't registered or requested your absentee ballot yet for this year's election, remember there are elections every year, not just in federal election years. You can do so by going to vote.org or if you're an American abroad like me at votefromabroad.org. 
I want to give you a heads up about my next two weeks uh, of podcasting. Next week, I am delighted to be welcoming uh, a good friend and former Republican, uh, disenfranchised, disturbed, uh, disgusted, uh, ex-Republican, but not yet Democrat, Marshall Manson. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, this podcast is obviously by, for, and about Democrats, but, and I'm not interested in winning over the votes of people, um, who think that I should change my views to make America less good for the purpose of agreeing with them. But there are serious and good people out there who, um, feel that the Republican Party no longer represents their view and who would be open to change and open to a conversation, um, but who nevertheless do not feel like we are the place for them. And I think I'm hoping that I will be able to dig into some of that with Marshall and, and find out if if common ground exists between us. And I hope that we will find it does. But if it doesn't, tune in here to find out. Um, the, the week after that, I want to talk, I will be talking to Adrian Monk from uh, the World Economic Forum. We will be talking about inequality um, and we will be digging into this question of the political ramifications of a deep structural change that has happened to our society in that inequality um, seems deeply entrenched and self-reinforcing and what are the mechanisms um, and the ways forward through and out of that. Um, the WEF has taken a lot of criticism for being kind of the forum where the perpetrators of inequality um, operate, but I think uh, it is worth hearing his take on things um, and and how we regard inequality and the extent to which it is um, not just a political problem, but a, a, a future life problem for humans. So got a lot to cover, um, and I hope you will tune in in those next coming two weeks. Thank you very much.